You're listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders, business leaders, and marketers around the globe. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind. And now, let's get into it. Welcome back to Innovative Minds. Today, I have my friend, mentor, advisor, someone that I have got to know over years, and I'm sure you already know of him if you're in Australian Sydney market. I've got here is David Kenny. He's partner of Hall Chadwick. He's a startup mentor, is really highly regarded within the startup ecosystem for providing advice on all things business, finance, and just being someone that, you know, a lot of us can go to and bounce ideas and thoughts and get some really great wise decisions because he's just done this for so many years. So thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me, David. Absolute pleasure, Mel. And it has been a while, so thank you for reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) The, The reason I wanted to bring you on is because one thing I've been seeing that's a real struggle for founders is right after a raise and specifically, you know, when they've gotten into sort of a series A level raise or any raise, it's the most difficult thing is it all just comes crashing down. It becomes quite overwhelming that, well, I've got all this money. How do I actually go about what's the next step? And I don't know if you've seen that. It's like almost like um, I've seen it where it's like fatigue kicks in from this race. Yeah, for sure. Look, you can be an embarrassment of riches from having founders used to bootstrapping and having nothing and then all of a sudden being overwhelmed with, you know, I was only talking to someone about this the other day. They had all of a sudden three and a half million dollars in their bank account. They're going, oh my God, take a photo of that. Um, and now, you know, let's go on holidays. No, um, but it, it can keep you scrappy having not much and then getting into the mindset of saying, how do I get from series A to series B and what do I need to get done in that period of time? And I don't, just have money to burn now. I've got money to get to that next uh, level and reverse engineer to the higher valuation. Those are the um, the, the wiser founders that will you know, manage that capital properly. Um, but it's definitely a, a surreal moment when you it's more money than some people ever see three and a half million dollars or even twenties and thirties that you know, I'm seeing some of the rounds come in at um, in in recent times. And that's uh, there's a lot you know of um, burn at that point and there's um, so getting used to having money and and still being frugal with it but attacking when you need to attack it there's a lot of uh, challenges and questions that need to be asked and it's a this can be a, a make or break uh, thing for, for founders how they manage that process yeah definitely how would you say that they should prioritize what they should be asking themselves potentially so you know say come into 20 mil of money and everyone's at different stages I've noticed as well just because they've all come into money doesn't mean that they've got a really strong marketing arm sometimes or sometimes they've got a really strong marketing arms but they don't have great still talent in operations you know so I guess it's different for every journey but in general with all your years of experience what's your sort of advice of someone that's just you know okay got the money in the bank how would you tell them to prioritize and how would you advise them to sort of think i think it goes back to what you said it's the stage they're at so if you think about 
a startup. It's all about the product and the customers and then spending money wisely in accordance to which stage you're up to. So if, you, if you're pre-revenue and you need to think about, you know, is my product not ready? Is there things that I need to build before I can monetize it? Is it, am I still building out the, the major uh, type of customers that I want to attract, building out the product so I can do that? Or am I at revenue now? I've discovered that, you know, how my product should be used. I've got great list of customers that I just need to close on and, and do sales for. Then it depends on, on what stage you're at. Are you in B2B and I need to, I can now afford to hire some more salespeople and, and get better quality people and get people, no matter where they are all around the world to, to join the company. Because that moment where you know, someone believes in you and says, here's a check for $20 million. It, there's a lot of gravitas that that can create to that's that moment where people think this is going to be big and you want to take advantage of that. So hitting the ground running or finding the right people or auditing the team to say, how am I going to go from A to B? Um, it's, it's that prioritization and sometimes brutal prioritization of, you know, the team that got you here may not get you there, but then there's also the school of thought to say, well, why did they invest? Because they think you're already on the right track. So getting, keep doing what you're already doing is possibly the other uh, initiative that might work and, and, and what you should be prioritizing, keep doing what you're doing because people already believe in you or they'll you've, you've explained what you're going to do with the money in the, in the race. So um, can you execute on that? So there's no one answer. It depends on, you know, what market someone's in, what stage the product's up to, um, what missing ingredients of the team they have? What were they waiting to get when are they bringing engineering in-house? What are, what, what are they doing now with the money? Depends on where they're up to in the product development cycle and the distribution. Can they afford to expand into new markets? What was the money for will often inform, you know, because investors are saying, yeah, I believe in you, Mr. or Mrs. Founder. You've, you've already set the plan. Now it's about executing on it. So that's it often the issue, but then that doesn't mean you can't rethink and keep thinking about, am I still on the right track? When is it working? And when am I seeing sign that's not working? And you're constantly just not trying to prove yourself, but to decide, am I still aiming in the right direction? Am I still doing the things that matter? And that, that are, am I looking at the right metrics? Am I looking at the right data? Find the truth, not prove yourself correct, I think is, a, is, is really what you should be constantly uh, thinking about as, you, as you're going through a, a journey of uh, building a great company. Yeah, there was a lot of touch points there that you brought up, lots of questions for founders to think about. And first thing you actually touched on was product. And I think it seems like, you know, if your product is not there and everything else, if you try and do marketing, you know, and you start trying to market, but the product is not there and it's not sticky enough, what happens is us marketers here, do all this marketing, but unfortunately the closing doesn't happen and then the revenue doesn't get impacted, you know? So it's kind of like I feel the base of the product has to be there or sufficient enough to get conversion. But all the time what I see is you do have like a half-baked product and then you've got like full marketing going on at the same time and, you know, product and sales and they're all like kind of looking at each other going, oh, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you know, that's a it's a very common thing. And I guess for founders, they're like, okay, they want to invest more into the product, but they've got these investors, they've got to show that, you know, I've met X, Y, rev goals, because they've usually given some goals or, you know, hard hitting figures um, that they can't just be all about 
product in their mind, what advice would you say for them? Would you say to them like sort of block out six months and, you know, if you've got an 18 months runway that you've got, how could they think about prioritization of maybe marketing and product, demo books and all that? Well, I think that's the the issue that all founders have is the prioritization of resources and call that uh, capital allocation and just deciding what deserves the, you know, the fuel. Uh, is the product almost ready? Is it, is it, you know, um, is the feedback from customers that, you know, it's almost, it doesn't do this, so I won't buy yet. Um, I mean, you just, that constant flywheel of dealing with the product and the customers and what needs to be, when is it saleable, um, identifying the right customers to sell to, finding more of those. Uh, these things take resources. So th- I don't think there's a magic pill that you can take. You've just got to be working out, well, what's your product doing? Is it is it something that's really sticky? Is it something that is, how much value is it, is it adding? How much is it priced properly? Um, because, you know, great use of, you know, rather than raising more money, if you can sell and keep customers and put prices up even better. Uh, so I don't think it's about doing everything. I think it's the, the CEO has got a job of how to allocate capital and decide, you know, what deserves the, the capital. Is it more work on the product? And in some ways the product's always been worked on and bugs or whatever the question is. It could be a biotech company, who knows? Um, but you've got to decide... How am I going to allocate my capital? What do I need to spend on to launch my product and what new features or keep selling the same product or build a network effect or build out, you know, partnership agreements or look at my model, look at my channels, look at my, should I be joint venturing with people? There's, these are all the ways to, to get scale, to to decide where should I, should I, am I do I have M&A currency now? Should I buy another company that's either an aqua hire or um, somebody that will give you distribution and, and you can help them and they can help you. So how you allocate capital comes down to, it's all about business acumen and understanding what should I be doing that keeps me on track to keep me heading towards a really big value proposition for customers that's 10x better than anything else they're using that is going to stick around and give people mad outcomes that they can um, you know, have, have customers for a long time or build out other opportunities for people to come into the marketplace, for example, or whatever. It's just you're constantly asking, how do I get more customers or the right customers and help them uh, solve the problem? Uh, what's my burn rate? What's how, how close am I to profitability? There's a million things that you need to think about based on the variables um, and by knowing the variables, you'll hopefully ask better questions um, to get to what the one thing that would make the biggest difference to that company right now. And is that their focus? Um, and if, if not, why not? I think it sounds like also being agile and feeling it through between product, between marketing and being able to be agile going, okay, I need to be here or I need to be here and just, not sort of being in a six month. It seems like you need you do need to be sort of everywhere, but also at, at a focus priority of maybe two places that you can keep moving in and back in between between your product and customer. Is what I heard from you is very essential 
after a race. So if you're going back between those two things as a priority, you're probably doing the right sort of behavior in general without looking into your business. Yeah, you never stop hopefully talking to customers and working out how are they experiencing, what are they seeing, is it solving the problem, how are they using it, developing narratives around that, developing the right features or the right network or bringing in people that can help you scale it. I mean, it's there's no one thing. It's, it's I would say let's look at the facts and then let's ask questions and work out what happens next based on these What's the right decision for the founder now to work on? And what experiments are they running? Because they don't, it's, some, it's all a guess sometimes, you know? So then mitigating uh, the losses from poor experiments and looking at the data, but also having good insight and gut feel and then backing yourself. And I mean, that's part of being a founder is you enjoy taking risks and you do something that is massively game-changing. And that, that's part of the reason why every, they're so exciting is that you're hopefully going to change the world for the better. Also for the CEO himself, like what uh, he or she is trying to figure out a lot of the time is what should I be doing, you know, and what could I delegate to other people to be doing because now I've got resources I can hire. How much time do I spend on training someone else or finding out what skill set someone else can do better than me in my team that I can now, you know, let go of? Um, Where am I the most effective? Are huge questions, you know, when you've come into some capital and you're like thinking, okay, well, I don't need to maybe now be in marketing. I, I'm really good at, you know, right now product and the vision and I have to be here and I can give this to a much, you know, to another person that's now in my business and I've got this support. I think that's sometimes also, again, feeling out and saying, oh, I think that person's really good. I think they're going to be able to do it. And sometimes they disappoint and they need a lot more handholding in the earlier days. And how do you kind of figure out that process of do I let go of a pretty critical task because I can be more effective in this one? How would you say, you know, they can go, okay, leave. I've got a CMO. I trust them now and I'm going to let them make that decision. What's your kind of, you know, what have you seen worked? What have you seen failed? What are some of the learns um, that CEO should be thinking about when making those really critical decisions of departing from a critical role maybe they've been part of for the last years? Well, I guess you go back to there's a lot of questions along that question. Uh, But if you think about a single founder that's doing everything on day one from building, selling, developing concepts, developing the narratives, et cetera. Uh, and they're going to pick some key systems and processes and, and platforms that they're going to start building in and keep um, all of those things that need to be done. At some point, they'll either work out, I've done something, I've set it up, I think someone else can run it, or they can attract someone else who's massively better at something that they're not good at, uh, which I call bench strength. And so you've now got somebody who is, you know, if you're, you're a great CEO vision, you can manage cash, you can, but you're not good at execution. You're not good at doing things. You're not good at doing, making sure the proposals go out, making sure the, the sales documents happen, making sure all of these things just get done, but you're good at the big picture. You might be good at tweaking the 20% improvement, but you're not good at getting to 80%. You've got to work out at that, what point, should I hire someone? What am I weak at? Acknowledging you know, your real blind spots and working out what are the priorities for this at the moment to get to 
a customer to solve a problem, to be able to get distribution, be able to charge someone a fee or, or maybe not, maybe you're building out a platform before you turn on the, the pricing or you're building a platform that someone else wants to be to be to see, whatever the case may be. There's no starting point here. So I feel like it's, you're going to do most things until you can afford to hire someone or something is so important. It needs to be continued and it's not something that stops and it needs to be evolved or, or be uh, constantly used to reach customers or constantly used as a, it just depends on what needs to be done. What's next? What's, what are the questions you should be asking yourself about the product and the customers uh, and distribution and unit economics? There's so many things to get right in building a successful startup. So when you have reached your point of, you might be a first time founder and need to bootstrap a long way. You might be a second time founder and say, I'm going to start with a $20 million round because I've done this before. And you can then go out and hire the dream team or you can, it's never money that solves the problem. It's always the quality of your thinking, the ability to sell the story, get the right people around you, build the right type of products, ask the right questions, be able to bring everybody along with you because they believe in it and they want to be part of it. So it's almost like if you love something so much that you are prepared to give up whatever else you're doing, that can be infectious to say, I want to be part of that team. So I'll leave what I'm doing here to do that. And then maybe you don't need as much resources because a lot of founders work a long time on nothing. So you've got to have something and you've got to be able to work out how you're going to articulate that, how it's going to change the world. What are the things? And again, these aren't things you have to do. They're just things you might do. Yeah. Talking about the dream team and talking about being able to, you know, capture the attention of a dream team. One way that everyone, you know, when they're hiring a dream team thinks about is, you know, do I give away options? Do I give away equity? I don't want to lose you know, X person, how long do you wait before, you know, you even have those discussions? Is it the first thing you start talking about depending on the quality of talent? That's something, you know, I think everyone as a founder grapples with, you know, is this the right person? Should I be offering options or should I get them to work for X amount of time before I give and even, you know, dangle the carrot or should I dangle the carrot on day one from when they're being even hired? What are, you know, what are your thoughts on that. I think it depends on the, the tension in the conversation and the quality of the people because I mean, you've got resources, you've got time, uh, you've got money, and you've got capital, as in your shares, right? Your options or whatever you want to, however you want to carve it up so it translates to equity in your company. You've got to decide what you can do, how important the cash is, how much risk you want to take, how quickly you want to dilute yourself the caliber of the person you have to have, who's that must have hired that's already done something, built a hundred million dollar business and you, you want to be able to attract them. It's going to no doubt probably rely on having them as a co-founder. It, it is first employees almost always get some options and a co-founder will probably get much more. So it, it depends on what you need to build what you're trying to build and what you're, blind spots or your weaknesses are or where you can further enhance what you've got and then do something else. So it depends on the company, but typically you're going to start with a co-founder 
uh, and then you're going to at some point hire some people. There's two schools of thought. You might say, well, I'm going to have some options. We'll get some advice. We'll get something structured and we'll have a bit of a, a look-see period to say, are we getting on? Are they committed? Are they the right person? Often you know in three months if someone's the right person when uh, there's chemistry and there's passion to build and do whatever it is that they need to do. If you don't know the person, if you don't know their background as well as you should maybe or nobody knows, you know, people change, people picking the right person is incredibly important. Probably the first five to 10 employees of a startup, incredibly telling in terms of how potential or otherwise your company will have. Um, so wanting the right people, attracting them, retaining them, having their you know, remuneration and their, their shares and their the culture right. There's no one thing. It's just getting the whole package right for everybody because people are got lots of different thoughts. No one is identical. There's no homogenous people out there. What ticks for someone? Some people might not value options. Maybe they don't understand them. Uh, maybe they want to optimize for cash because they think, well, I just want to look, see. And then if they think, damn, this is going to be a thing, then they'll go, hey, I wish I want, could have some options. There needs to be some tension so that people want options. Otherwise, they don't value them. If they just get given them, they go, oh, well, I've got these options. You know, they're, yeah, but I can leave. But you want to have options so that people want them so that they are a real retention strategy for the right people. So it comes back, it starts with what do I need? Who do I need? What will make them tick? How important are they? How valuable are they? How much would a, a life-changing exit for them look like if they had 1% of the options or this much value based on a pre-money valuation today, which gives them a, a kicker against poultry salary they might be accepting to join. Depends on all of the, the stage who else they're in business with. A-graders want to work with A-graders. Depends on the founder. So if they have the gravitas and the ability to make it exciting and say, we can do this and this is going to do that and people want to join and that's exciting, well, it may be a lot easier to get someone. But having said that, how you engage with people, how you treat them in the beginning is how they'll remember you too. So don't necessarily, there's a school of thought between being generous and having enough and not being mean-spirited as well. Like everyone works differently, but common sense is in getting to know people and working out, well, what would work for you two? Good, good questions and good conversations and good chemistry and good ethics. You don't want to take advantage of people. You want to get them to see the vision, understand what they need to do, test them. When you think about options, right, and maybe you, you can... Um explain a little bit more when people are thinking about it how do they typically work like is it after one year a portion of options becomes available for them so they can convert into equity or is that a convertible like what you know how does that all actually work from someone joining well first of all let's go back to the basics and maybe a little bit too simple for most but maybe not uh, so an option is essentially a right, but not an obligation to acquire a share in a company. The working parts of that are that there is a set of rules. It's a, the employer share option plan, template, documents, etc. rules, which sets out what price, if any, you pay for the options. That could be the strike price, typically called the strike price. 
how long the options are how long before you can deal with the options? How long before there is no restrictions on those options? How old the company is, as in how many years ago the company was incorporated? Um, what the company has already done, as in has it raised a lot of money, etc. So there's some incredibly generous rules in Australia for uh, startups that are issuing options, so the right to come in and exercise an option to acquire a share in the company. If they fall under the safe harbour and startup concessions, then they can rely, and there's there's many, many criteria to satisfy, but assuming they do, then they can exercise an option. They Sorry, they can be granted an option with some restrictions on how long they have, and typically it's three years before they can deal with those options. And they then get to exercise those options whenever the rules say they can, Usually that happens at either an exit, so at a liquidity event, so someone wants to buy the company or there's a there's an IPO possibly. Sometimes there's a double trigger. There's all sorts of, you know, you can have options agreements this long or this long, you know, in terms of the complexity. What you're trying to do is to say, I don't know what the shares are worth today. Good news is we can give you something that's very tax concessional, meaning give you some options today, not charge you very much, is in the net tangible asset price of the option, which might be with a startup as the cash and computers divided by the number of shares on issue, that it might only be a cent. So you get to buy 30 options at 30 cents exercisable in four years' time, for example. And in four years' time, the company could be worth $100 million. And people go, great, I've now got mad value. I can exercise those 30 options for 30 cents, and now those options are worth $2 million, for example. And they go, guess what? Well, the commissioner, the, the, the legislation allows for those options to have been acquired or exercised to acquire the share and immediately sell, subject to getting a ruling. And then the employee or advisor, can be an employer advisor, gets those options, sells those shares, and they get a discount on that gain. So they sell their shares, get the $2 million, and they get half of that amount, present law as it is, and only half of that amount is assessable. So they only get taxed on a million dollars, not the two. So it's incredibly generous for good reason, because we really need to build some great companies in Australia. We need to incentivize people from walking away for some of these really high paying jobs to do some great work on advanced manufacturing and building biotech and building out some things that will put us in good stead for the future. So that's a great limb of being able to get that resource, being smart people, good doing what they need to do, complement your weaknesses and your strengths um, to join the team so that they can be part of the, the win, a game-changing outcome for them in terms of their life um, wealth and only pay half as much tax. So it ticks a lot of boxes. Got it, got it. And because it says options, is there an ability then for the company, they don't want to exercise their option or is there an ability to structure it in a way so if the company's like, no, we'll buy that back from you, like how does that sort of work? Like you either don't execute your option and that's just, I guess, weird because you've come to this point, but okay, you, you can just option expires, I guess, dead end. What about like if the company doesn't want you to exercise, like it's getting close to three years and they don't think that you 
are worthy of the options or you haven't put in the thing, what happens then? Well, unless there's transparency on the, the in the in the agreement to say I'm going to give up my job and you can at some at your discretion say I oh, know I don't deserve those I've worked for three years and I don't want you to have the benefit if you're the CEO you're probably going to struggle if someone reads a document to attract that person to say well hang on I, there's no protection here for me so if you get to three years what typically happens is you probably know in an early stage if someone's going to work out or not but. That's why you can have vesting. So they get to own, you know, if they get to the three years, you can say, well, they're all mine, for example. With that restriction, you get to defer the tax. If you go rogue and you leave the company and you or you harm the company or you do something illegal, typically in most option agreements are good or bad lever provisions. So, and these are very broad in terms of the way that they're structured but typically if you do something that's illegal for example worst case scenario or you harm the company then you are potentially caught up in the definition of bad lever because the company doesn't want you anymore they terminate you and subject to what the rules say you might get paid nothing or get paid a fraction of what they're worth and that is the the penalty for doing something bad covered under the good lever or, or bad lever provisions to protect the, the company from someone doing the wrong thing and so that they are rewarded and they can't be unnecessarily penalized just because there's a change in the mood of the CEO. So they they can be terminated as employees if they're not performing and then the options at that point are no longer if they have uh, performance issues because if they are employed well maybe not it depends on the definition of good lever or bad lever if someone's done nothing wrong but the company is now needs a new person that can take it from 30 million to 100 million dollars they did nothing wrong but so that's why vesting is good for those board. that those situations if the company's scaling really quick and they've got their vesting and if they have to depart at second year and they didn't make it to the liquidity event of three years at least on that side, you've got vesting that, you know, but I've done two years of that three years. Yeah, which is what it needs to do. You need to be protected so that if something goes wrong, provided you're not the cause of that problem, you're protected. I actually interviewed um, Kim Hayes from Cake, who has an awesome options platform that, you know, enables founders to, you know, quickly set up those options. Um, so, yeah, if anyone is listening and is curious, they should definitely, I think, check out Cake, which everything we've discussed, I think what they've made it a lot more easier to actually give options to your employees. His viewpoint was, you know, do it from day one. I mean, I, I am a fan of Cake Equity, but again, I think everything is subject to all the, the, the circumstances. But I will say that it simplifies the operational, I think I still think there are decisions that need to be made and smarter decisions will make you, will help you hire the right people, get the right, I mean, there's still lots of decisions that need to be made. How much do I issue the options for? How many? Over what period of time? Do I use them for attracting stuff? Do I use them for top-ups? Do I use it for, there's a lot of different questions that still need thought to go into but then once you've decided that i feel like cake's a great way of 
taking all the heartache of the of the administration, which can be quite cumbersome, out of the picture. And they've got some great explainer videos and great lots of amazing IP in that company. And great people, love the guys. But I would say the simplification is what it does so well. That it's you still but it doesn't there's no substitute for thinking about what's right for you and what's right for your team. Yeah, absolutely. As we're kind of discussing it, it comes to the point, who do you have these conversations with? It's usually you have advisors, right, that sit and you can do what kind of, you know, hey, I'm thinking about giving options. And if you're not sure to who and how, you usually have advisors around you that can, you know, you can bounce this off. And I think that becomes very crucial at um, for CEOs who, who are their trusted board of advisors and and who are your external advisors and how do you, you know, find those people? Because you've got to have people that have done it. But I think that becomes quite crucial. And if you're going to succeed, it seems like as you start moving up your round level. Yeah, there's a lot of learning that can be done. You can find advisors or you can find the answers yourself. I mean, with having a sounding board is a good thing. Like and that sounding board could be other founders. It could be, you know, what who's been where you're about to go. Like, I think that they've got a degree of, practical experience and they've had, maybe they've had experience before theory as well so sometimes people overestimate knowing what the rules are and they don't optimize for really working out what's right for bill or mary or whatever uh, and following a formula may actually hurt you start with a conversation and, and work out what everyone wants and what everyone expects it's how you balance the all of the resources where the skill comes in to say, okay, well, I can do more options. I could do more salary. I can, but which one? And, or I could do more of this or less of that. So it's a good founder will probably have some natural ability to manage resources, not just be a complete novice and get, and be a real fast learner and be someone who's coachable and someone who can in a, in a matter of time, do some research, ask some good questions, bounce it off someone else and then come up with a, their own conclusion that they have real conviction in. So how we learn, very different, but doing it and making mistakes is one way. Doing it and learning from other people's mistakes is probably better. Um, but again, you got if you avoided one mistake, you just make another one. Um, there's too many mistakes to be made. But look, at the end of the day, I think that you know, advisors can be a, a wonderful thing, but as long as they're not telling you what to do, because I feel like it's still got to be the founder's decision and the founder's got to learn. And if the, if, if the founder's just following instructions, they don't learn or, you know, they're not, the advisors aren't at the coalface. So, you know, they, they can maybe share anecdotes or they can share you know, some business acumen, but it, there's no substitute for it to be the founder's got to get better at, capital allocation, hiring decisions, building culture, launching products, um, sales, marketing, metrics, narrative, uh, managing the, the push-pull forces of general and administration expenses versus more sales versus more R&D. The founder's got to get good at these things. Otherwise, it'll be the CEO of the company employee one. And by employee 100, they're no longer the right person and they're tossed. Um, so investors may take control of the company. What about board of directors? When should they be deployed and 
be set up? Well, it depends on the circumstances as usual, but I tend to think that a, like a formal board is probably a little bit of a, apart from the founders, it's probably a little bit premature until at least maybe Series A or B. Um, I mean, that doesn't stop founders getting informal advice and, and setting up advisory boards if they want or just going and having conversations. And so it's not an advisory board. It's just, you're just a person I like to talk to because you ask me good questions. And so I can work it out for myself and I can have a constructive debate and I'm not being told I'm an idiot, but I'm being told, I'm being asked questions. I'm having a live you know, exchange of information and in trying to get to the truth, not prove I'm right, but find the truth on something or polish my thinking so I can make a better decision. I wanted to, I guess, ask you was, because you've been and you've seen so much in your career and my fascination right now would be, you know, what is does it actually take to become a unicorn you know like what have you seen is it you know what was the mixtures and you know the different flavors that you think you know from what you've seen that why it can go to unicorn is it the team it was the product what was it everything was just in place was it the right timing like probably easy to say that's one but the path is very different in terms of how they develop things in different times and prices and and teams and I mean it, it definitely involves you know capturing a customer um, having a great product that's 10x better than something else but it doesn't have to be because it may be it's about building something that people get huge value from it may be the network they get more value from than the actual product as well the product becomes you know less or subordinate to the network in some things like is there's lots of examples of products that are more valuable because of the network than they may be an okay product, but they've built an amazing community around it. So it just depends on, you know, there's lots of different unicorns that are marketplaces, e-commerce companies, biotechs, SaaS, and they all have a different path. But I think maybe what they have in common is that they, they were asking questions that, wanted to change things in a wholesale way that they weren't afraid to change. They had pretty strong conviction that they were right about something and they, but they, you know, were maybe firm convictions loosely held and they kept thinking about, is this right? Am I spending my money correctly? Am I, you know, they may not have publicly said that, but they were, had the humility and ambition to keep driving work relentlessly because you've got to give up stuff like i mean this is this is not easy you know building a billion dollar company so that grit and determination so they they have competitive mongrel they have a little bit of crazy they have gravitas they have um i mean these are some of the traits of the, the leaders i guess you know they can they can sell they can they can create Pension. Yeah, they, they read customers. They can see what the customer needs, not what they want. They can see through things. They can see, you know, how to build something that isn't there, or and they have conviction on that, and they, they listen and they see patterns, etc. But what what it looks like ultimately is that they've got to build something. Most businesses. I mean, there are certain companies that don't have revenue yet that could be billion dollars, or there, there are lots of, you know 
even NASDAQ companies that have got billion dollar valuations with no profit. So it's all about where they're going to get to and how they're going to eventually monetize and eventually make a profit because it has to be worth something at some point. So building up a massive number of emails and thinking, is my company worth $10 an email addressed, for example? And so how can I push a product down that? Can I bring another product down there? And so I have an S curve for my second product to go, that's when I get my big kick of valuation. Because I've got... It's about managing your current assets, your IP, understanding all the intangible assets and working out what are they so I can develop them and explain them and build a narrative around them and build customers, solve problems, attract, keep, retain, etc., and then keep building on that and working out, well, where's the market going? Do I keep going in that direction? Do I keep spending more money on marketing? Do I speak, do I build another product? Do I um, expand the, the, the base by buying another product or building another product or doing an M&A transaction? It's all about capital allocation, how good you are at deciding what do I invest in, both money and people time and being able to see why this is going to actually be a, a thing and a game changer, that is what it, it takes to build a billion dollar company. So it's easy to say, you know, keep doing things well. And if you get to 20 million and ARR and then to 100, I mean, there's a compression on valuations of SaaS companies at the moment. So is it $150 million? That's a billion dollar company maybe, $200 million. Um, it might be just getting to product market fit and keep doing what you're doing. Or it could be thinking, well, how do I increase the value of my customers by bringing their value? How do I increase their value by bringing in other people into the platform or bringing other conversations in or whatever it is? So it's, it's just all about continually building value for customers and capturing your share of that value and doing it in a sustainable way and doing it in, in continuously trying to either improve your unit economics or build out more, you know, testimonials and flywheel effects of that. There's no one thing. It's just where are you right now? What's the most important thing you should be doing right now? And how do you push away everything and just focus on that? But also not just be blind and say, let's keep going in this direction. We've got to work out, is this still the right direction? You know, constantly asking yourself questions on, Am I going the right direction? Am I going the right speed in the increments direction? Um, one of those questions I should still be asking to, to verify my plan is still robust. Talking about unicorn companies, has there been a unicorn company that has come past your desk and you look back and think, gosh, I can't believe I missed out on investing in that? I mean, since you see so many, right? I've seen things I could have invested in uh, that I didn't. Um, I've seen things that I did invest in and have done really well. Um, I don't think I regret anything I didn't do. I don't know, oh, well, maybe some things. Maybe just Canva. <laughs> Certainly not. Well, I don't know the specifics of individuals because I really just move past and say, I think this is going to be a successful company. Do I want to invest? Is it the right time? Is it There's too many variables? So you can never go back and say, I should have, because I think, well, why beat yourself up for something you didn't do? I've made some smart investments. I'm, I've invested in some people I really think are absolutely special. 
Um, they're doing special things and they've created a mad amount of value. Um, I don't look back and say, I wish I had invested in this. I just go, go you. Yeah. Why are you so passionate about, you know, startup ecosystem and particularly, you know, tech ecosystem? Like, what is it that attracts you so much into this ecosystem? I don't think it was a overnight love at first sight thing, but I've been working in this space for about 20 years and helping people spin university, created technology and spin out that or, or look at going overseas, hiring overseas, hiring better people. The world is not Australia. It's, you know, wherever the opportunity is, wherever the market is, um, I feel like it's just, you know, uh, it's more challenging, you know, and the, I guess the reason I've, I'm now where I'm at is I've, I've I said where I was, I, I knew a little bit and I love learning. I love testing my knowledge and helping and being part of some great teams. And I've met some unbelievable people, like just people that are just awesome people, smart, dedicated, clever, um, great at execution, no excuses, just do it, you know, and I've been lucky enough to be on their teams. Um, I've seen them make a hell of a lot of money. They've learnt from me. I've learnt from them. I mean, it's not a transactional thing. It's a. It's just I, I love seeing people win. You love quality people as well. It sounds like just being able to learn from quality minds. Absolutely, people energize me. I, I love being around people and and seeing learning and developing and people. Yeah, winning. I love seeing people win. I, I cheer for them. Like if I miss out on an investment, I go, go you. I'm so happy for you. You know, if I didn't invest, so what? Um, but I love, I just love seeing people doing things that they've got no right to do, like to change how people buy software or how people solve something. And they've just got this absolute equal parts of pathological optimism with rational optimism and dedication and gravitas and they're a little bit crazy but they you know i to me it's not necessarily about the price it's about the person the journey they're on and and how you know why they're doing this and what they started with and the humility their ambition i love those sort of people i mean they're my type of people i love helping them i'm very fond of thousand plus people in the in the startup community when you've hung out with these people and these will be my final two sets of questions what is the best piece of advice maybe you've received from these people that you always look back and hold on to that you could share with us best advice i've received i don't know if it was necessarily advice but i feel like it's just conversations about how people ask questions i mean i remember sitting uh, in, you know, the first days of Startmate, sitting in a room with some smart people and thinking, you know, Dan, there's some good questions in this room. Um, and I think that was the, I guess, I don't know if that was advice, but it was stuff, stuff that really influenced me to say, I need to learn more about this. So it, it probably sparked my desire to learn just to drive myself to learn as much as I can about stuff that would otherwise be alien to me, like technology and hiring and building things and, and 
sales and marketing and just being absolutely obsessed with learning everything and unit economics and metrics and feedback loops and you know, sales bibles, strategies to attract and retain. Like I just obsess with it because I just love the space. I love learning and I love people that, you know, uh, you know they're in that, in that um, lane to try and build something. So I, I don't think it's advice I got. I just feel like it's observations I've made by people around me asking good questions. What, what are some of the best questions that you've asked or have asked? Well, I think it comes back to there's just so many good questions like, you know, why are people doing something? I mean, it may, it may seem yeah. stupid. That... I remember, yeah, you've asked me that a few times, which is a great question. Why are you doing this? I don't want you to just think that that's just so superficial because it actually is why are you doing something is is a multi-tiered question. There's questions within questions. And it's all about, well, what's your motivation? What's where, what's your starting point? How long do you want to do this? Are you doing, are you running away from something or running to something? Are you doing this because you were told you couldn't do it? Are you doing this? And, they, and these sort of tease out the traits of working out, is someone going to have resilience and grit? Are they going to give up as soon as it gets difficult? Are they going to, um, are they going to stick at it, you know, when the tough gets tougher, you know? So I think that's a good question to say, why are you doing something? Also, it unpacks the quality of someone's thinking, not just what their motivation is, but I I have this thinking model and I, and I say, you're obsessed with what? So, which is a communication tool as well to define what the issue is and then Think about the causes and the effects well before you then move to how you do anything. Then there's a second uh, layer of how, which is you need to make a decision on what you do, and then you need to make a decision on how you do it. So it's decision what, decision how, before then you execute. So if you obsess with what, before you then look to uh, make a decision on what, so you're really understanding it from all the angles and the perspectives and and you understand it like you're an insider, you make better decisions. So it's thinking a core skill, and as I said, that's why I said it may sound obvious that asking questions about why you're doing something shows me, is this a flippant passing thought? I remember sitting with one of the founders that I met who said this is what their day entailed, and she was presenting at an event I was at, and she said, I used to jump on top of tables and take photos of things. I used to look at go and research this and research that. And, and, and I said to the person who was interviewing it, and I said, do you all feel lazy? Because this person was absolutely obsessed with what? Now, at the time, I didn't realise it, but they could tell you everything about this. And some people call it domain expertise, but it's, it's not just the information, it's the cause effects so that you can then decide what I need to do next. You'll make a better decision if you're obsessed with what. Uh, then you go to how, and then there's two elements of, the decision of what and the decision of how then you then you go to execution so you you just miss less if you do you follow that process what did i learn by quality of my thinking so asking that question what are you going to do next or why are you doing this it is very telling of whether or not someone's ready for this journey and they better be ready because it's not going to be easy yeah no i love the what and the how and you have to sometimes you know pull yourself back because you can really get 
into a whirlwind of just doing, doing, doing and executing. And I think it's a really great point, especially when we catch up and sort of where you kind of come back and you go, you know, what is the purpose of this? You know, what is it that you want from this? And what is the life that you want to live, you know? Um, And I think those type of questions that you ask, and I think it really makes someone pull back and go, okay, like, okay, what is it? And then how am I going to even do this? And how long am I going to even do this? So really, really powerful questions. It seems so simple, but very easy to just go into execution level. So yeah, if you don't know, you know, what you actually are wanting. Um, The other kind of points that I think we've been talking about more recently, and I think it's it's a great um, way to finish is your mental health, you know, as a founder, because you're doing so much and you're trying to hire a team, you're raising, you're under enormous amounts of pressure to allocate your time. And it's, I think, you know, it's very important to check in with your mental health because I'm sure there's burnouts that I've been observing and seeing, especially with the current market, with how the funding is and um, what's your sort of, you know, you've been seeing that and have you seen the best founders at the end being able to take that break and, you know, or what is your advice for them? Because burnout is a real problem. If you burn out too early, you really can't have that exit if that's what you wanted at the end or. Well, I mean, yeah, we're not robots. Uh, we, we all work very differently and, you know, with this um, pandemic and, and a lot of um, really disastrous things happening around the world, there's a lot of rethinking about what people want to do. And uh, the the pressure of raising money, keeping people employed, um, not running out, building something, you're at a race. It's a race to get things done. It's hard work. I mean, it's it's almost, as I said, you know, you've got to be a little bit crazy to think I can do it or I want to put myself through this much punishment. And it is important to reset. In fact, I'm reading a good book at the moment that I've I'm not quite finished, but I, I love it so far. And it's about uh, mind management versus time management. And uh, I'll come back to you on what it's called. It's written by uh, someone called David, something I can't remember, but it's a great book. And it makes a, a lot of sense to me to we spend so much time thinking about how we use time and, and, and productivity is you know, people talking about how much time they're working and I'm busy and I'm a, and the amount of time I spent with charge, you know, lawyers, accountants charge per hour, um, which doesn't necessarily translate to value. It's just a way of measuring saying, I did this much time, therefore it must be worth that. But changing the insight to say, you know, what outcomes am I getting versus what time am I putting in uh, is important, but then also thinking about how you get outcomes. It's not just doing the same thing. It's actually understanding our minds work very differently. We have the right, and we all got different circadian rhythms and our brain works differently in the morning and evening. And depending on what sort of person you are, great book, as I said, um, and it's really important to understand that you need to create space because we've got these two types of brain, if you like, there's our subconscious and our conscious, our neocortex and, and our subconscious brain and having, and the way we 
get more creative is by understanding how our minds work better and giving us space to um, to reflect, have some space to let the transition between short-term and long-term memory come in, let go of um, things that are a challenge at the moment, come back to them and, you know, people talk on, say, oh, I need to sleep overnight on this and, and it gives you the space to come back and say, let me get rid of all the cobwebs of I couldn't work it out because I was holding on to the wrong answers. But then if I come back with a, with a fresh perspective and the, the time that my brain does its most creative thought, I may see other patterns emerge. I may see the solution that I didn't see before because it was it was just melting around in my mind rather than just being, I just need to stick at the crossword or stick at the mind map or whatever it is until I work it out. So having the time to research, repair and recharge. I mean, all of those things, we're not robots. We, we can't work on, you know, 24 seven. We've got to look after this, which, which drives everything else. I really enjoyed the conversation. It really gave so much educational insight and inspiration. So thank you for being open and sharing so transparently and coming on and enlightening us with some questions. I'm sure that everyone that's listening on to this is going to have questions that, that they're going to want to answer from just listening after and taking a moment to just process some of the questions you asked and I asked during our podcast. So thank you so much, David, for coming on and speaking. Absolute pleasure, Mel. Thanks for having me. And can we put in the chat um, what the name of that book is? I'll tell I'll tell you what that book is because it's, it's, it's a great read. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on and thanks for everyone for listening into uh, a, a, a chat that I enjoyed very much. You are listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind.